Hello, you are with Love of Learning, a podcast focused on transforming the world through education and self-education. My name is Dejan Stanchev and I'm your host. As in our previous episodes, we found out that about 50% of children in the USA have a chronic disease. Why in the 21st century, in one of the most developed countries in the world, we have so many children sick and what could be the root cause? I can say from my experience that when my son was having a breakfast every morning with milk and cereal, when he was aged two and three, he was constantly sick, coughing. And what I found out is that milk causes mucus that needs to be removed out of the body. Since then, his breakfast was non-dairy, mostly freshly squeezed juice or a fruit, and no coughing and lung infection happened ever since. Today, I'm excited to speak with Dr. Yami, She is a passionate promoter of healthy lifestyles, especially the power of plant-based diets for the prevention of chronic disease. She founded VeggieFitKids.com, where she provides information on plant-based diets for children and hosts the podcast Veggie Doctor Radio. You can find out more about Dr. Yami at dryami.com. Thank you for being with us here today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. On your website, VeggieFitKids, I saw that Uh, Dr. Yami is a pediatrician pediatrician on a mission. What is that mission and why is it so uh, important for you? Well, my mission has definitely evolved over time, but I think before I was really focused on this whole pediatric obesity, child obesity prevention and reversal. And now I'm more focused on helping children thrive, helping them have well-being and longevity. And I just want them to feel good. And I want them to feel good through their lifestyle habits, primarily what they're eating, they're sleeping, having connections with other people and having a good, healthy body image and relationship with their food and eating. Okay. So, so what, what are the biggest issues you found so far with with children you've treated? Well, as a primary care pediatrician, I see lots of different things, but I would say when it comes to supporting healthy habits and longevity for children, especially here in the United States, one of the issues we have is the standard American diet. And I think the reason children start eating processed foods so young is because parents get anxious about how much their child eats or how much maybe they don't eat. And so they use some of these foods as a way to get their child to eat more food. (laughs) And then, you know, it just becomes a vicious cycle. So one of the things I work on over and over again in well child checks and with families is, is supporting them, is encouraging them that it's okay to take a step back. It's okay for you to make decisions about giving your child health promoting foods, but then your child has their own autonomy. They can decide if and how much they want to eat of that food. You don't have to keep trying different foods or doing all of this thing each meal to try to get your child to eat. Their bodies are intelligent. They know how much they need to consume. So really the parent can focus on providing that health promoting food and letting go of some of the anxiety. So basically the parents should be eating the same food, not just promoting, right? 
Absolutely. And I think that that's of supreme importance is knowing that parents are the ultimate role model for their child. A lot of parents don't realize that, that our children, they see everything we do, even if, you know, it doesn't seem like they're paying attention, they are. So we should really be serving our kids the same food that we eat. And that food that we eat (laughs) should be health promoting as well. I know a lot of parents, they feed their kids sometimes better than they feed themselves because they want their children to have good habits, but the parent themselves hasn't taken the time to maybe learn some of those good habits or change their habits. So the more you can role model that for your child, the better. So lots of people think that uh, we cannot have uh, healthy children without any meat or dairy and there is going to be something wrong with the children if they they eat only vegan. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your opinion on this? Well, it's just not true. You know, definitely people have different reasons why they choose to raise their child vegan or 100% plant-based. But even for families that aren't going to go 100%, the more whole plant foods that they can integrate into their family meals, the better. But it's not necessary to eat meat for health and longevity and well-being. And in fact, we eat too much meat. Honestly, if we're looking at the studies, if we're looking at our chronic health conditions, we are over-consuming animal products. We're over-consuming animal protein, where we thought that protein is like this glorious thing that you can't get too much of. Now we're seeing that perhaps we are consuming too much animal protein, and this is increasing our risk of chronic disease, even things like cancer, dementia, even aging. So even for longevity, for people that are interested in optimizing their lifespan, it makes sense to eat less meat, but if you don't eat any meat, you can still thrive. So I, when I created veggie fit kids, the main reason I created at the beginning was to have a place where plant-based vegan families can go to find support from a healthcare professional and other healthcare professionals that were looking for information on plant-based nutrition and vegan diets for children could find some information as well. Because it is one of those things that because such a small percentage of people are doing it, it doesn't feel mainstream. The good news is that now we're learning the advantages of eating less animal products. And now there's more products on the market and people are hearing the terms plant-based and vegan more than even 10 years ago when I first became vegan, I didn't know any other vegans. And so now it is becoming something that you at least have heard before, even if you don't fully understand it, but it's a huge myth that children need to eat meat to be healthy. It's just not true. So what are the biggest uh, issues or problems that someone who is facing, who is eating meat and dairy all the time, and he wants to move or she wants to move to a vegan diet, what they need to know, what's the problems there and what the steps to take? Well, I think the first thing, because I'm also a health and wellness coach, so I do work with adults as well. It's you, you can look at it different ways, whether you're transitioning a child or you're an adult that wants to transition. I would say that for adults, that transition, the biggest problem I see, and this is one of my pet peeves is that because you're not familiar with the abundance 
of plants, you just, you're not used to it. It's not in your repertoire. It's not in your mind. Whenever you think of plants, a lot of people think of salad and they think of fruits, which is great. It's super healthy. I'm not saying don't eat salad, but you shouldn't only eat salad. <laughs> and mm -hmm. so what happens when people are first transitioning and there's like, okay, I know that salad can be vegan. I know that apples and bananas and grapes and stuff like that can be vegan. So then they only eat that. And guess what happens? They're starving. They're so hungry because the calorie density is so low, which is a good thing for some people, you know, that way you don't overconsume calories, but the, the, change is so sharp from going from processed foods and animal products, which are more dense in calories to this low calorie density food. And then people are like, Oh, I couldn't go vegan. I was just so hungry. I was hungry all the time. Well, they weren't eating enough. Also they, when they were first transitioning, they didn't understand, they didn't realize that whole plant foods are lower in calorie density, even the more dense forms like beans and whole grains, which I really encourage people definitely to consume those foods. And so they don't realize that maybe they need to eat a little bit higher volume, which I see as an advantage. I like eating abundance of food, or maybe they do need to eat a little bit more frequently. Like don't be afraid of hunger, but also realize that it's okay to include beans. I encourage my families and my patients to eat beans every day, if not multiple times a day, but at least every day whole grains. There's nothing wrong with it. We're so carb phobic right now that people think of carbs and they think of everything that has carbohydrates, which is most of plants. Most plants have carbohydrates on them because they're composed of all the macronutrients. They're health promoting. They also have fiber in them and they have lots of phytonutrients. So eat your brown rice, you know, get some black beans in there. Don't be afraid of some avocados. Make yourself a salad that's hearty. Make yourself some good grain bowls and know that pretty much anything that you can eat that has animal products, you can make a vegan version, <laughs> anything like you can have lasagna and you can have enchiladas and, you know, you can have pizza, you can have all of those things, but there are versions that you can make that only use plants and they're so delicious and it's abundant. So that's what I would say. The first mistake that people make is that they think they have this narrow view of what plants are and they, they get very restricted and they don't eat enough and they don't feel good. And then they quit. Yes. Okay. Okay. Thanks for this. Uh, is it safe for pregnant women to be vegan and what foods should they be eating and what foods the pregnant women should be avoiding as well? Yes, definitely. And there's many women that have had a successful, healthy vegan pregnancy with big old babies at the end of the nine months. So it's definitely possible. It can definitely be health promoting, but just like anything else, you have to be mindful. So one of the things is supplementation. All pregnant women should be taking a prenatal vitamin anyway, but pregnant vegan women should be particularly mindful of their vitamin B12. And so they need to make sure that they are talking to their healthcare provider about being vegan, make sure that they're taking appropriate supplements so that when that baby is born, the baby is not at increased risk of deficiency right off the bat. The other thing is, uh, just like I was talking about for non-pregnant humans, that first transition, uh, pregnant mamas do need a little bit more calories. So it's about 300 calories more per day for just a single pregnancy. And it, 
you know, that's not a lot. You can easily get that in one or two snacks per day, but, you know, just being mindful of it, making sure that she is taking in good sources of calcium, beans, greens, fortified foods like calcium set tofu or fortified plant milks. Um, And then just being mindful of that. Any pregnant woman really should be being mindful of their diet anyway, because fetuses can taste, they can taste in the womb. And so I do encourage moms as soon as they feel up to it, you know, those first few weeks, they may be kind of nauseated and everything just looks disgusting to them. But once they get over the pregnancy nausea, get those leafy greens in, eat those beans, eat your berries, make sure that you're getting all of those good health promoting foods that are high in antioxidants so that you can increase the chances that once your baby starts eating those complementary foods, they are already receptive to those flavors. But it, it's healthy. If moms want to have a vegan pregnancy, it's definitely possible. Just make sure that she is working with her healthcare provider to make sure that she's supplemented and optimizing her intake. Amazing. You have a book called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. Uh, what is intuitive eating and what is your book about? Uh, by the way, I've just ordered it from Amazon. So everyone who wants to have it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that so much. Yeah. So intuitive eating is actually a set of principles that was created by two women, Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli, uh, back in the eighties, actually. So it's been a while and really it focuses on tuning into your body for learning how much to eat and when to stop. So they have a set of 10 principles, but when it comes to teaching children or not even teaching them because children are born intuitive eaters, but fostering and supporting this intuitive eating. I want parents to just realize and understand that children are inherently intelligent. They have an inherent wisdom to know how much they need to consume. So we kind of take this for granted with babies, but once children become toddlers or preschoolers, we start to override that wisdom. So we tell them just one more bite. You have to eat this before you eat that. We start making all kinds of food rules for them. And then the opposite can happen too for families that might be concerned that they have a larger body child, then they may start restricting foods. And these things that parents do, they're well-meaning. And I know that parents love their children. And so I want you to know that I feel that. I feel your love and your care for them. But whenever you start to interfere into your child's eating, then you are overriding that natural intuition, which it's one of those things that can cycle into other things. So I just want to remind parents and teach them about intuitive eating, honoring that hunger and satiety, supporting a good body image, what parents say about their own bodies, how they talk about their bodies, how they talk about food, trying to depolarize food in general, not see food as like this moral issue. As a physician and a pediatrician, you know, there's definitely some foods that have a higher health value than others. That's beyond a shadow of a doubt. You know, I do want children to eat lots of fruits and vegetables and beans, but whenever we say, you know, beans are good and cake is bad, or, you know, make those kinds of distinctions between foods and moralized foods, then that can also interfere with intuitive eating. So essentially my book is about the 
principles of intuitive eating, how to integrate into your family. I talk about plant-based nutrition as well, not because I think everybody needs to be plant-based, but because I do feel in general, we need to learn how to integrate more whole plant foods into our family meals. And so it helps with that. And then I talk about other lifestyle habits that support intuitive eating, because when it comes to the way we eat and the way that we choose foods, we are influenced by other habits that we have. So sleep being a huge one, stress, exercise, all of those things influence our eating. So it's a very complex sort of system. And I want families to be aware of that. And then I take families through all the stages, including pregnancy, pregnancy, all the way to adolescence and different challenges or how, how the relationship with food might change, how the development changes from children, from when they're babies to when they're teenagers and different things that might come up. So, you know, I think it's a, it's a small book, easy to read, but I think that it will help families as they try to navigate feeding their children from pregnancy through college. Sounds very useful, very useful for us to get a good habit with foods and to understand better how we should uh, deal with food, actually, not just eat everything what's around. Uh, how we should follow our children's needs for better, better health. How should we what? Say that again. How we should follow our children's needs for better health. Our children's needs? Yes, yes. Um, well... I think that can be tricky because <laughs> obviously, depending on the age of the child, there's, you know, children that might want things that are not, not necessarily health promoting for them. We have to balance that with our own knowledge of nutrition and of healthy lifestyles with what our, our child also wants. So I think that the most important thing is just following healthy habits, not necessarily trying to be perfect, but making sure that you are promoting a good um, whole plants as much as possible. Lots of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, making sure that your child is getting adequate sleep, adequate space and time to move, move their bodies and keeping the stress levels low. Mm -hmm. Or if, you know, stress is a normal part of life, helping them learn how to cope with stress and their thoughts and feelings and emotions. So I think that, you know, kids, their needs change over time, but if we establish those good, healthy habits, then we should be able to support them throughout all of those changes and all of the stages. Um, uh, what was the difference between kids that eat, uh, eat everything, uh, vegetarian kids and uh, proper vegan kids? Is there something in your practice to see that's different in them? Well, I feel like I am a little bit biased just because I don't love dairy. You know, I feel sometimes when families are vegetarian, like they're lacto-ovo-vegetarian, they still have that belief that they need to get animal protein from somewhere. And so then they may overdo mm -hmm. the dairy. And 
I've just seen so many problems from dairy. I mean, from the beginning, when kids transition over to cow's milk, constipation, chronic abdominal pain, you know, these kinds of issues, kids that have cow's milk protein sensitivity when they're babies. So I don't, you know, I try really hard not to demonize dairy. I try really hard. <laughs> and this is coming from someone from my family, they're dairy farmers. Okay. So it's not like, you know, but anyway, so I would say that for families that do want to still consume dairy and eggs or, you know, other foods, just try not to become overly dependent on those animal products because they're not necessary. And I tell families all the time in my practice, even the ones that are omnivorous, don't overemphasize dairy, just keep it low. It's okay to eat it every once in a while, you know, but try not to have it every single meal, every single snack. Don't feel like your child has to have a bunch of it in order to get sufficient calcium because it's just not true, you know? So I think that that would be the, the caution is just the problems I see from milk. And I would say my practice, fortunately, because I have families that are very invested in their health and well-being, I have very healthy children. My, my kids in my practice are just so healthy. Not all of them are vegan or plant-based, but the parents that I work with are very mindful about getting as much whole plant foods in there as they can. So it really, really does make a difference. And you don't have to be a hundred percent. Just be mindful about getting more whole plant foods in the diet every meal and snack, try to get some whole plant foods in there and make it a habit. It's not going to be like this sprint, you know, where you have to just go crazy and do it all. Just make it a habit. How can you make this part of your lifestyle for the long term? And it really makes a difference in health. I mean, you definitely see less chronic conditions for sure. We know that, but I would say that children just overall feel better, less chronic abdominal pain, constipation, sleeping better, better energy. So all of that really does make a difference. What's the, the optimal diet for a child in order to have the maximum benefit of the food nutrition in all the different dimensions of development? Well, it does change over time. I would say that for an infant under one, if possible, have the baby be drinking breast milk. You know, not all mothers can breastfeed for whatever reason. And so this is not to make any mothers feel ashamed or guilty if they're not able to breastfeed. But for those moms that are able to breastfeed, if they can make it for a year, that would be awesome. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but then between four and six months is when we talk about introducing complementary foods. I encourage getting those green leafy vegetables in there as soon as possible. Babies usually that early can't feed themselves. And so I talk to my families about doing purees of green leafy vegetables, mainly so that they can get exposure to the flavors of these foods. And then once they're able to feed themselves then you can give it to them in a form that, you know, you can do the baby led weaning and all of that. But once babies are are eating, getting them exposed to green leafy vegetables, 
other vegetables, uh, fruits, whole grains, beans, and once they're an appropriate age, exposing them to nut butters and seed butters to decrease their risk of developing allergies, you know, and starting that water habit early. Babies under six months old shouldn't be you know, given or offered water. But after their six months, I have parents start with cup training with water so that babies start to acquire the, the flavor of drinking water. Because a lot of kids, if they're not exposed to it, or they're only exposed to juice or milk all the time, then they don't learn to like water. And that's one thing I'm super proud of for my practice, my patients, they eat beans and they drink water. And I think even just those two habits are huge, you know? And then of course, as the child grows, having as many whole plant foods as possible in the forms that they're able to tolerate, you know, as they get older, they can start doing, you know, more solids and, and those kinds of things with their families. But that's the key point is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, getting those in there for every meal and snack as much as possible. Um, if you're having some animal products here and there, it's, it's not a problem, but really the majority of what you eat should be whole plant foods. And that's what I encourage my families to get. If they could get to 75% of what they eat being whole plant foods, that would be amazing. Uh, under whole plant foods, you mean uh, raw vegetables and fruits? No, not necessarily raw, just in their whole form. So what I mean by whole is the way that you would find it in nature, not processed. So a processed food, usually you have things added or removed. So beans are a whole food, whether you're eating them, the whole bean, or you're eating them mashed and, you know, hummus or that kind of thing. I consider that a, a whole food or minimally processed, but what I want families to avoid is just over depending on processed foods. So our processed foods going to be all our chips and crackers and cookies and candy and all of those things that had to be made in a factory, you know, like fibers taken out, you're adding sugar, you're adding salt, you're adding maybe even artificial colors and flavors. So we want to keep that low in the diet and we want to keep our whole natural foods high in the diet for little kids you don't want to overemphasize raw foods now fruits one thing that's fine but when it comes to vegetables we want to lean more towards cooked foods just because the calorie density is a little bit higher and their tummies are so small so if you're eating mostly raw foods it takes a big volume of food to get enough calories so you do want to be cautious about that. It's okay to eat some raw foods when they're little, but mostly you want to be offering them cooked foods and make sure that you're not neglecting your beans and your whole grains and getting some nut butters, avocado, those kinds of things in there for your, for your whole food fat sources. Okay. So um, got it. Got it. Well, uh, what are your tips on how to transition kids to a healthier diet and set them on a healthy path for life? Yeah. So it's never too late to start. That's what I tell families. Sometimes families feel like they've gotten a late start and, you know, they feel bad about that, but it's never, never too late to start. And I would say it's really important to work with your child. So I know that sometimes, especially moms, we get in our heads, okay, we're going to make a change and we're just going to do it. And no matter what anybody says, and then you meet resistance and it's a big problem. So I would say uh, taking small steps, including your child, having a family meeting 
and talking to the family and being like, Hey guys, you know, uh, lately we've gotten into some habits that may not be quite as health promoting or as good for our health. So I would like to start to change us to some healthier habits. So what do you guys think about that? What do you think about maybe having this recipe or trying this or eating more beans? And you don't have to emphasize what you're going to take out. So don't say we're going to eat less meat and we're going to eat less processed food because then everybody hears just the negative and they're going to panic, you know, like anytime you're going to take something away from somebody, there's going to be panic and resentment. So it's more about what are you going to include? Can we eat more fruits? Can I start putting more fruit in your lunchbox? Can we start having more salads or having some salads on the side? How can we put more green leafy vegetables? Maybe we need to eat more beans. Can, how about we try some lentils or some split pea soups? So talk to your kids about it, have them choose recipes with you, have them go to the grocery store with you, have them help you cook. My kids are 10 and 15, almost 16, and they cook one night a week by themselves. They pick the recipe and they send me the recipe. I do the grocery shopping just because it's more convenient that way. And then they take it from there. They create the whole meal and it's one of the best nights of the week because I can go for a walk or just sit on the couch and then a hot meal is prepared for me. It's like a dream come true, but they're learning how to work in the kitchen. They're learning to appreciate food and ingredients, their understanding, and they're learning how to pick recipes, which is so cool. They pick the coolest recipes I never would have picked, you know? So it's really great to give your child some of that choice, some of that autonomy, and then it makes them more excited about food. And it doesn't feel like it's something just happening to them. They feel like they're part of something. But the most important thing is to not emphasize just what you're taking away. Talk about what you're adding and make it a positive, fun thing. Don't make it like this scary, you know, like if we don't do this, we're all going to die of heart disease. Don't be like that. You know, just be like, you know, I'm starting to not feel good. And maybe you're not feeling good, or maybe we're not sleeping good. How can we make some changes so that we can all feel good and we can all live long, healthy lives together. So when we make it positive like that, I think it's a better experience for everybody. I think it's always to, to, to have it a positive way and it's always much better and easier. And uh, I like the way you deal with your children. So they cook once every week. <laughs> And it will be really, really amazing if more and more parents do that so that their children can cook instead of going and eating out all the time and really enjoying homemade food. Because I think homemade food is much, much better and it has much more nutrition value than the one cooked in a restaurant or a fast food place. Uh, what, what are the most important foods that every child should eat every day? Well, I'm a big bean pusher. So I would really like everybody <laughs> to eat beans at least once a day. And hold on one second. I need to go put my dog away. Give me one second. Of course. Sorry about that. 
So the, the big one for me is beans, just because beans are such a powerhouse of nutrition. A lot of people think about beans and, you know, they think about gas and things like that. But the reason that beans give you gas is because they have so much fiber. They have both soluble and insoluble fiber, which feeds our gut microbiome. So they're so good for our gut, but they also have antioxidants. They're one of the powerhouses of antioxidants as well. And phytonutrients, they have calcium, they have iron. I mean, they're just such a great food. So trying to integrate beans and you can eat beans for any meal snack hummus here is really popular. Um, so black bean dip, refried beans, lentils, split peas. I love chickpeas, just whole chickpeas. So there's almost 400 edible varieties of beans. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. We usually just eat a very small restrictive amount, you know, in each country, but there's so many to explore. So you can never get tired of the different types of beans that you can cook. So I would, I would encourage families to try to integrate legumes every day if possible. Of course, you know, your fruits and vegetables, and then for children, when they're growing, it's important that they have sufficient calcium. I think we can argue about how much calcium they truly need based upon studies. So I don't think we need to get super stressed out about it, but beans and greens are a good source of calcium. But if your child isn't into them right now, or isn't eating a lot, then fortified products are fine too. I'm not sure you know, your listeners are probably from all over the place for, from where you're listening, you may not have as many fortified options, but here we have fortified plant milks, like fortified soy milk, where it has added calcium and vitamin D in there. Um, but tofu can also be set in calcium. So that's a good source of calcium too. So that would be another thing to emphasize, but I, I feel like there's, not something you have to have every day. Because once I say that, I think parents get really anxious. So they're like, okay, <laughs> my kid's just not into beans right now. They don't, no matter what I do, they don't eat beans. And I don't want parents to stress out about that. Cause that's just the reality of life. Like there's gonna be some kids that one day they eat like more than you. And then the next day they might take two bites all day and that's it. And that's okay. Nothing bad's going to happen to your child over time. They're getting all the nutrients. So what I, when I talk to families, it's variety, not from day to day or even week to week, but month to month. And that makes sense seasonally too. Right? So we know that produce, it grows, it's a season of produce and then it's gone. And then we have something else that comes for a while. And over time, that's how we've had variety as a species. And so I don't want you to feel stressed out every day that your child has to have a certain amount of calories or a certain amount of foods. But if you're planning meals, definitely integrate those beans, get those greens and uh, fruits and whole grains in there. And then neglect adding some whole plant food form of fat. So the nut butters, the seed butters, avocado, all of those things are really good to integrate too. And it just, they taste great. So it's more interesting to eat foods that have those in them. For, for calcium, what I, what I love, my favorite food for calcium is sesame seeds and tahini. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's really lots of lots of calcium in it, and it's even more than, than milk. Uh, the difference is that the milk, the calcium from the milk doesn't get absorbed. What I found out, 
Wow, the mm -hmm. sesame. And you can put it on seeds as well. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah, sesame seeds are, that's why I, I think nuts and seeds in general are good to eat because they have a lot of nutrients um, that, you know, like zinc and selenium and things like that, that you can get from them. So having a, a, a variety of those different plant foods helps. Another thing, I don't know if they have it there where you live is blackstrap molasses that is a good source of calcium and iron as well for kids that may be struggling getting enough. Um, but those are a little, I feel like the majority of children don't have uh, an issue getting enough nutrients as long as we're kind of being mindful and planning. Thank you. When, when we consider the whole child, what is your evaluation on kids' lifestyle in general? What should be completely eradicated? What should be emphasized? and what should be introduced for a full thriving of the children? Well, just like I said before, I think diet is huge because many of our chronic conditions are associated with our diet and what we consume. So eating more whole plant foods, I think everybody needs that, pretty much everybody. I think um, most families are not eating enough whole plant foods. In the United States, when you look at the percentage of calories and what foods they're coming from, it's a very small percent. It's like 12% <laughs> of our diet here that's coming from whole plant foods. So we have a long way to go on that. So that's a big one. But I think one of the next big importance is sleep. We neglect sleep a lot and it's getting worse and it's getting worse because of our media exposure, our technology you know, artificial lights. And just because we don't value it, we just don't think sleep is that important that we can just skimp on sleep, that that's when we can make up for things at night, you know, that we didn't do during the day, it's going to stay up late or get up early and not get sufficient sleep. And we do that to our kids too. We drag them around or they get into activities that there's some children that they're not getting home till nine o'clock at night, then they have to do homework. And so I really wish that we emphasized the importance of sleep more because it really affects long-term health. That's a big one. I think when it comes to physical activity, obviously it's very important. People don't understand how important it is for well-being and longevity, but unfortunately people just associate exercise with weight loss. And I, I want that to be separated. I don't want exercise to be associated with weight loss. I want exercise to be associated with well-being. And so for kids, it's natural when they're little, they cannot stop moving. I mean, if you've ever taken care of a toddler, it's exhausting. Like, I don't know how they have that much energy to move all day long. And then as we get older, we get more and more sedentary so that by middle school, when kids are like, you know, nine, 10, 11, they're sedentary, you know, they're sitting most of the day. And so as a family, what things can we do to start encouraging movement, get out for walks, do activities together so that we can encourage our, our children to move more. So I think that that's another one. And then of course the, the stress and right now we're in the middle of a global pandemic and that affects kids just as much as it affects adults. So learning those skills and those tools to help, uh, you know, evaluate and manage our thoughts and feelings so that we can decrease our stress and have 
more well-being and health that way. So I'd say that those are the big ones. Thank you. And uh, what about education? Do you think that our current educational system are equipped to teach our children the important and vital information and skills that every child needs to live a life full of health in every aspect of it, physical, uh, mental, emotional, spiritual, social, financial? Uh, how, what do you think about education? No, absolutely not. I mean, I'm grateful for education and I'm so grateful that my kids have teachers that teach them so many interesting things that they learn and that they'll use in their life. But we, we don't see the value of teaching our kids how to manage their thoughts and feelings of teaching them how to nourish their bodies intuitively. You know, now some kids, some schools are teaching kids counting calories and counting macros. That is not helpful. That's not going to help our children, it's just going to lead to disordered eating. <laughs> so teaching them about intuitive eating and nourishing their bodies and how to make good choices and how to get sufficient sleep and how to have healthy relationships and, you know, just how to manage their thoughts and feelings. And I go back to that because I think that's a huge one. I think I didn't learn, I'm still learning how to manage my own thoughts and feelings, but it's something that I had to go through a journey of discovery as an adult, if I would have had those tools earlier on, it would have saved me from so much suffering <laughs> earlier <laughs> in my life, in my young adulthood. And, you know, ultimately we all have to make our mistakes and we all have to learn our own ways. But what we want for our children is for them to have good, long, healthy lives. And if we can give them those tools early on, what a gift. I mean, such a huge gift we can give them. So I know we'll get there someday, but we're not there yet. Those are the things I wish we had in the education system. So, so probably parents, parents should learn more about those aspects themselves and apply them at home. And yes. they, shouldn't, they shouldn't leave all the children's education to school and their peers. But we as parents should take ownership of educating our children. And um, I'm not sure it's really, really happening, but... It's something yeah. you can do. And I think two, one that I believed as a younger parent, and you know, I've only been parenting for about 16 years now, but one, one thing that I believed as a younger parent is that I had to be perfect mm. in order to be an effective parent. And that's the furthest from the truth because mm. we'll never be perfect. So it's like an impossible goal, right? We're, we're never going to be perfect. It's always a journey, but being vulnerable, being transparent with your child and always striving to learn from the situation. I struggled when my oldest was, you know, that early, early childhood age, early school age, I struggled with the relationship with him and how to best parent him, but I learned and as I learned, I improved myself as well. And I helped some of my own habits and I talked to my kids about it. You know, I, I help my kids with their thoughts and feelings by telling them how I've managed my own thoughts and feelings and telling them that I'm not perfect, that sometimes I'm not in a good mood and maybe I snap at someone, but I apologize. And I say, you know, I'm sorry. I was feeling anxious. I'm, and this is what was going through my mind. It's don't take it personally, but just knowing that you don't have to be perfect to be a great parent and to help your child learn 
some of the things you wish you knew in life. So just be transparent, tell them the mistakes you made. Financial health is so important too. You mentioned finances in that question. So important. We don't learn anything about financial health. We learn about economics in school, but we don't learn about personal financial health. So talking to my kids about some of the mistakes me and my husband made and how we wish we could have done it differently differently so that they kind of have a different perspective. Mom and dad aren't perfect, you know, and they're trying to teach us stuff so that as we go through our lives, we at least don't make the same mistakes. You are a certified lifestyle medicine physician. What is your vision of lifestyle medicine and what are some immediate steps we can take in that direction? My vision is that people will take lifestyle medicine more seriously. I think we believe in drugs and surgery because we see how it's been used. And of course, thank goodness for antibiotics because <laughs> they keep people from dying a lot of times. But I think a lot of people don't understand the power of their habits. They don't, they do not understand how powerful what they eat, how they live, what they think. They don't understand how powerful that is or how much control role they have over it. Lifestyle medicine is incredibly powerful. It's so powerful that you have to give warnings for people that have diabetes and are on blood pressure meds that once they start changing their habits, that they may have side effects of taking the medications because then the medications become too strong. And it, it's a scary thing. You know, that is how powerful lifestyle can be. So my vision is that we get to a day someday when lifestyle medicine is the primary treatment. It's the number one treatment for, for so many conditions. And then maybe secondary tertiary, we start looking at medication, surgery, and other interventions that require more medical approach. But I think that for 80 to 90% of our chronic conditions that we experience in the westernized world, lifestyle medicine can be number one. So, so what kind of questions do you ask someone coming to you about his lifestyle and what, what he needs to change? Well, I think the most important question is what do they desire? So it doesn't really matter what can be changed if someone doesn't have a desire to reach a certain goal, you know, like for me, it's important that I feel good and I live a you know, long, healthy life where I feel good, but it might not be important to everybody. So if someone comes to you and comes to me, the first thing I ask them is, what do you desire? And from there, we can start setting goals. But I always ask about diet. And when it comes to diet, I have a, I, I do a very detailed uh, questionnaire. I don't just ask what they eat, but when they eat it and why they eat it. <laughs> Because sometimes like I know I was an emotional eater. I still eat emotionally. So, uh, just because I was eating certain foods, does it mean I was actually hungry? I was just eating, you know, for a certain emotion or to decrease my anxiety. So that happens to a lot of people. Some people just have the habit. They're just going to eat in front of the TV. They're not hungry, but that may not be contributing to their health, you know? So what they eat, when they eat, why they eat, um, what they drink. 
we don't ask about drinks, it doesn't usually come up. <laughs> so, you know, alcohol is a big one for a lot of people, especially through this pandemic, a lot of people have been coping with alcohol, you know, and that affects our health. So not a judgment at all. It's just objective information. Um, sleep, a lot of people struggle with sleep. So that's an easy thing that we can start addressing. And of course, movement, we are very sedentary and that doesn't feel good to our bodies. Our bodies want to move. And so once we start, uh, you know, tackling these different things, uh, a lot of people can see very, very quick results. They, they can feel better, very fast. And then connection to there's a lot of loneliness. There's a lot of relationship problems. And, you know, there's some people that don't have very much support. They don't feel like they have community. So finding community, finding a group of people that are like-minded that they can reach out to support is really helpful to encourage some people to continue leading a healthy lifestyle. Thank you for this answer. Uh, what is health at every size? I think you mentioned mm. this one and how to apply it. Okay, so this is one of my patents. So, um, and it's controversial because a lot of people misunderstand, but the concept of health at every size is that despite the size of your body, your weight, you know, your body size, despite that, you have the potential to improve your health and well being or manage your health and well-being through your habits and behaviors. So it includes intuitive eating, it includes joyful movement, and but it also recognizes that we're not the same person. We don't have the exact same genetics. We come in different size bodies and it's not helpful or necessary to require everybody to be a certain size in order to define them as healthy. It doesn't mean that every person at every size is healthy. That's not what health at every size means because there's some people that are very lean that may not have the health that they desire. And there are some people that are very large that may not have the health that they desire, but every person, no matter what their size can take steps by changing their habits and behaviors to get toward that health and well-being they desire. And now, you know, health at every size, obviously it's its own thing. It's been defined by a group of people and they emphasize health, but I emphasize now more than health well-being, because even though I do believe if we have more control over our health than most people believe, it's not absolute. Sometimes despite our best efforts, we may get sick. And even people that have disease that are sick can still achieve well-being through habits and behaviors. So that's a whole nother topic, but basically it just means that no matter what the size of your body is today, right now, you can start to influence your health and well-being through your habits and behaviors. What do you think about the doctors, the biggest doctors of the past centuries are saying that 90% of the diseases come from mind and emotions. I think it could be true. I mean, you know, obviously the way that we think and our feelings influences our behavior, you know? So our thoughts lead to feelings, which lead to actions. And 
when it comes to as a you know health and wellness coach when it comes to habits i know that i have to inquire about people's thoughts because it's their thoughts <laughs> that are usually obstructing them or stopping them from having the habits so even if it's a roundabout way i think that it can definitely be contributing to chronic disease but even by itself when we're stuck in negative mindset when we're constantly feeling stressed that directly affects the chemicals in our bodies. That's part of what emotions are. Emotions are chemicals, you know? And so when we're constantly flooding ourselves with negative thoughts, self-loathing, self-hate, all of these things, then it is going to affect us and might contribute to heart disease and all of these things, you know? So I think we could think about it that way as well. It influences our habits and behaviors, but also directly it can cause some health problems. What is the size weight bias that you're raising awareness about? So this is related to health at every size, but in the medical community, we are so fixated on body size that we make the assumption that body size is related to a particular concern. So doctors may uh, not make a diagnosis, may diagnosis because a person's body is a certain size. So if somebody comes in saying I have back pain and they're a larger body, a doctor may not do any testing or anything. They may not even touch the patient. They may say, well, you just need to lose weight. The assumption is your large, a large size causes pain. On the flip side, if somebody comes in and they're very lean, maybe look or appear to be athletic. And they say, you know, I've been having chest pains, doctor. The doctor might be, make the assumption, you know, well, they're lean. It can't be heart disease. Oh, well, it's probably reflux here. Take this pill for reflux and come back when in fact it could have been heart disease, you know? So I think this bias causes us sometimes to misdiagnoses or make diagnoses that aren't accurate. But I think where it's most harmful is that because people of larger size bodies feel discriminated against and feel ashamed when they go see the doctor, they may avoid healthcare completely. So one study I read, 30% of women had at one time or another avoided seeking healthcare because of their, the size of their body. So they were afraid to go in because they knew they'd be told you're overweight, you need to lose weight, they'd be weighed, you know? And so it really affects more than people think. I just want people to be aware of that, not just healthcare professionals, but other people walking around when they look at someone and just assume that because that person is large, they have heart disease, or they look at someone who's lean and just assume that because that person is lean, they're perfectly healthy and perfectly happy. That's not serving anybody. Of course, of course. It's not helping those people. So to try to just be aware of it. Of course. So, so basically by changing our lifestyle and especially our nutrition, we can uh, avoid many, many diseases. Yes. And uh, let's, let's say how we should start with that change. Should we start reading something or just small bits of pieces in the morning or what should we avoid or? You know, every 
every personality is different. It's the kind that I just jumped in and I like to change things all at once. And I, I actually love change. I love change. It's so fun. It's so fun to try new things and change habits, but not everybody's like that. <laughs> Some people are really afraid of change and it scares them. So it's totally fine to just take it step by step. And studies do show that doing one habit at a time is more effective than trying to change lots of habits at once. So I would say, look within yourself and determine what is it that you desire and are willing to change first and make yourself a SMART goal. So SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable, uh, realistic, and time-based. Okay. So say it's about eating. And say you want to eat more beans because, you know, that's what I recommend. So your goal can be, I will eat half a cup of beans every day, five days a week. And, you know, that's all of those things, the specific measurable, it's definitely achievable, realistic, and time-based. And then you can say that you're going to check in with yourself in a week or two, and then see how many days that I actually do that goal that I set for myself. And once you've done it long enough, it becomes a habit, then it's just automatic. Okay. What beans am I having? How am I going to integrate them into my meals? So just little changes like that. What foods can you add? How much more movement can you get? Can you go to bed 10 minutes earlier? Can you reach out to one or two friends a week to connect, start meditating to de-stress? So what is it that you feel called to do and you feel willing to change, start there, make a smart goal. And once you got that one down, make another smart goal. It's, it's amazing. So if you are able to tell someone who would otherwise never hear what you have to say about using food as medicine and raising healthy vegan kids, uh, what would you, t- would you tell them today? I would say it's way more important than you think. It's uh, a great way to raise your child with healthy habits, with compassion, with well-being. So, you know, don't dismiss it. Look into it. Definitely there's books, there's documentaries, there's all kinds of resources, communities you can find, but realize that it is very powerful and it is a huge gift that you can give your child. Okay, thank you. Thank you for being on, on the podcast. I think I've learned many, many interesting things from you. And uh, I would say also it's a very good thing to switch to vegan most of the days at least. And yes. I think uh, I admire what you're doing and raising awareness amongst all the people. And you're doing doing amazing job. And hopefully to see you next book as well. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate having, being on your podcast and thank you for all that you do as well. Thanks and take care. Bye-bye.